yes, check one, two, check one, two. This is Cinema Eschaton, a side story, a side quest, a guidance, if you will, uh, from the channel that brought you Zebras in America and saying hi to Doug. This is Scott Thurow and John Arminio, and we are joined by a guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Josh Arminio, John's younger brother, and I really appreciate you guys having me on to talk about uh, what many people consider to be a flawless movie, <laughs> The 13th Warrior. I'm sorry, uh, the laughter of your brother uh, muted what you were saying. What what movie are we talking about today? <laughs> the 13th Warrior. All right, so 13th Warrior from 1999. It very much feels like it's from 1999. It's, it's like a 90s epic, if you will, uh, cut from a similar cloth of Gladiator or something of that nature. Uh, I was going to say Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but I recently rewatched that, and that movie is terrible. It's not good. There's like nothing really very good about this movie, and what I'm thinking you're intimating, Josh, is that this movie is flawed. However, it it does have a following, though, doing some research. It didn't do very well in the theaters, loosely based off of a Michael Crichton movie, book, excuse me, which is loosely based off of Beowulf combined with uh, a real living figure, Ahmadi bin Fadlan, who was an Arabic man who traveled with the Vikings. Uh, yeah, so what's your experience with this movie? How would you describe this movie? What is this movie about to you? Yeah, I mean, I would say this is definitely a 90s, a late 90s epic, definitely a pre-9-11 movie for sure. Right. Um my experience with this movie, I first watched it uh, around 2003, 2004 uh, on VHS. I had heard about it, I think, on a VHS preview. Uh, I saw it as a preview on another VHS. I and miss those. Th- yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, don't remember what movie. It could very well have been Saving Private Ryan, but I can't, I can't say for sure. Um, and I was really into the Civilization video game series, the Total War video game series, so I was really kind of entrenched in historical strategy games, and I was also into Dungeons & Dragons, and I had recently got into uh, heavy metal, especially this band introduced to me by John called Amana Marth. They're a Viking themed death metal band. So watching this movie, which had both Arabs and Vikings in it, killing these kind of pseudo fantastical creatures, it was definitely right on my alley. And John, what is your experience with this movie? Yeah, pretty similar. I probably saw it around the same time that Joshua did. Um, but I was, yeah, and seeing it did sort of like connect with my discovery of the band of Monomarth. And so those two passions, my love of heavy metal and my love of this movie, definitely sort of feed off each other. Watching this movie made me go back and listen to some Monomarth albums that I hadn't listened to in a while, and it was awesome. Um, obviously, Vikings are a frequent theme in heavy metal. Um, but I think yes. a, yeah, a movie like The Northman makes me want to listen to Enslaved, but 
this movie is perfectly suited to a, ba- a band like a Modern Marth. And yeah, I've I'm I'm also um, somebody who has a real soft spot for the more derided or forgotten films in a director's filmography. And so you know, this is a John McTiernan film, and he's directed some of the greatest action movies of all time. You know, Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October. And this one definitely does not have the reputation those films deserve or those films hold. And so I just have a soft spot for for The 13th Warrior because I think people sort of uh, unfairly deride it. And um, I know it had a real troubled production history. And John McTiernan has certainly had his, has had his own personal problems since this movie came He's out. He's gone to jail. Yeah. He's gone to jail. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, Michael Crichton, who wrote the book Eaters of the Dead, upon which the film was based, uh, he did reshoots for this film. He likes to pretend it didn't happen. But you know, I, movies like this, you know, I've I have a genuine affection for. So I'm I'm real happy to be talking about it. And it's it's starring one of the guys of '90s action movies, Antonio Banderas. Yeah. Who well, one of the greatest Arab actors of all time. <laughs> Fam- fa- famously an Arab actor. Yes, and of course, for the listeners that don't have the tongue in the cheek, uh, famously not Arabic, <laughs> a man from Spain. And a guy who was in a lot of great, fun 90s action movies, obviously, Desperado, Assassins, which gave, I think that was written by the, the now Wachowski sisters. Uh, I don't remember, but I remember liking it. And this movie has a line in it that I remember from when I first saw it that, I, that I've used before because I just think it's awesome. So in the movie, Antonio Banderas plays this character who is exiled for a love affair and is taken in by Vikings to go on this quest to, to stop these bear people. And he's kind of made fun of because he has a small horse and he's a poet. And as one of the Vikings says, he draws words which I just think is so such a dope description of writing. And that line, when I rewatched the movie this week, I was like, oh, I still like that line. Oh, I don't remember this movie at all. And so, Josh, you have a relationship to this text in a way in your, in your life? Uh, are you talking about the book, specifically The Eaters of the Dead? It's just a leading question, my man. Um, my relationship to the book, I read it shortly after I watched the movie, so I was I was still a, a teenager, and I went into it with, and I'll I'll ask John to kind of expound on this, less of a knowledge that authors do sometimes mix in fictitious sources and kind of blend fact and fiction in a way that Michael Crichton does in this book, but I went into it pretty earnestly and kind of took all this in uh, as fact. And then kind of later when I realized that a lot of it is made up or, you know, striking the truth or embellished, I kind of soured on it uh, in a way, but I definitely have a fondness for the original text uh, from Ibn Fondlan and he also has a Persian contemporary named Ahmed ibn Rusta, who kind of wrote a similar story about the Rus, which 
um, is also very fascinating. And are you comfortable with talking a little bit about your about your own biography and some of the things I've I've heard about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have a degree in Arabic and worked in uh, Arabic translation for several years. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. The you know the line you can draw sounds. I always thought was pretty cool, and you can see. Uh, several times, uh, Bolvive and uh, Ibn Fadlan draw the or write the Shahada, which is there is no God but God in Muhammad is the prophet of God in the sand. And even though they kind of cut away during the writing, it's from the quick glimpses that you can catch of it, it is accurate. Um, but some of the kind of assertions that Michael Crichton makes about Arabic and some of his translations are kind of flawed well michael crichton was a flawed man oh yeah absolutely wasn't he like a climate denier uh um yeah he had some wacky um conservative conservative or a science denying ideas for a guy who was so steeped in science in his fiction writing it, it was a very weird turn that he took later in life yeah i mean like some his books again are like embedded in 90s film culture if only for the movies made after his books you know including jurassic park and what is it the sphere or something like that what was his abyss movie oh god i don't know was i mean he made so many i I know uh, congo was was a book oh yeah that was that was not that was not my favorite one no but you know yeah he he had a bunch of movies in the 90s and you know, it just it just is what it is, and it's on unf- uh, sphere. It is it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, and the director of this movie, yeah, he made Die Hard, he made Last Action Hero, which I think is a slap, slept on movie. Me too. Which which was written by a guy who I really like, who I'm drawing a blank on, who made Iron Man three, which is my oh Shane Black, favorite. Shane Black, Shane Black. So he wrote a lot of those action movies, and he didn't write this one, but he wrote some of those great action movies and then directs great action movies. And, John, when we did the episode on Everything is Illuminated, did I tell my anecdote about Jonathan Safran Foer? Uh, Yes, yes, you did, about meeting him. Okay, so I won't tell that story again, but it is a story about the importance of translation and understanding texts. And Jonathan Safran Foer not being very nice to me that one time, but I that doesn't that doesn't count as a judgment of him. People have bad days, you know what I mean. So yeah. So you you Josh you 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 grow to be a translator of Arabic and you see the flaws in the text, but you still love the movie. How, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. I- Great question. I, my mom asked me the very same question earlier today, and I, I think I think about it the, that a lot. I think a lot of the technical aspects of the movie. I really like the score. I really love the costumes and the sets. Uh, I really love the acting and the prop work is really good. I think there are gems in the script, and. I remember watching a featurette on the movie and the producers uh, and the director, some of the actors talk about how rare it is 
to have not only a like a practicing Muslim as a hero, but any spiritual uh, protagonist in a movie. So I do appreciate that fact. I, you know, very few movies made in the West have a Muslim who prays on screen that talks about Baghdad favorably and mentions how it's this, you know, city of peace, this center of science um, in the Western world at the time. So I appreciate it. You know, taking this true story that many people may not know about onto the big screen, and you know, for all of those reasons, I really have a soft spot for this movie. And there's a lot of sometimes we have these notion notions about religion not wanting education or learning or growth, which again I think is a flawed look and obviously a simplified look in in a world that. That, is, that can be very black and white in its thinking. But the, the Islamic golden age was, you know, like they, they, some of the great scholars come from Islam preaching learning. That's why when in recently in Afghanistan, where they're trying to ban women going to college, a lot of the Muslim world is like, no, no this doesn't come from our text. From our text, we are, it, is, it is encouraged to learn. So what is so what is how do you relate to that? And John, do you have thoughts? I've been hogging the mic. It's... Josh, you go ahead. Who? Um, yeah, not an easy question to answer. That's how we do I, it here. <laughs> you know, I think the modern Taliban and the early Islamic caliphates. I don't think you you, you can't really compare the two. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't, but right, right, no, exactly. I, I think that at that time the Arabs were just able to compile, you know, just being blessed with this geography of being able to compile Chinese and Indian and Persian and ancient Greek and North African sources, and they were just able to utilize that and their military acumen and their administrative acumen and really. Yeah, bring about this golden age not only in Baghdad but also in yeah across North Africa and Spain as well, and I yeah just find that really fascinating. And and you know I think that um, the meeting of the minds that this movie portrays, I think is you know really fascinating and and beautiful because both these extraordinarily disparate cultures have an energetic debate about like the meaning of existence and um, the the role of fate in in life and the way we, we pray to gods and and you know what what is uh, allowed and what is encouraged and, and what is forbidden and and cultural differences and you know they they come together f- for this you know common goal and it's it's fascinating the way you know the movie navigates you know science and religion and intellect and like battlefield prowess and how all these things are valuable and admired and you know all of these characters can be more than one thing like um even Fadlan becomes a greater warrior he becomes a better man but you know Bolvai 
comes to respect the written, the written word, he recognizes the power of drawing words, um, and it it becomes his legacy. And I think that's one of the strongest moments and themes of the film. Absolutely, and like fatalism as a concept in both, obviously, philosophy, um, religion, and philosophy and religion, I, we, can, we can do that, is a big thing, this idea of predetermination and fate and manifest destiny and all of that. And yeah, so how do you link faith in this story, the, the meaning of Norse religion and Islam religion, and if you want to give a little preamble to that, you're more than welcome. Yeah, well, I've, I don't know about you, Josh, but I have read, like, the prose eddas and, and most of the, the poetic eddas, so I'm, I'm not going to say I'm an, I'm an expert in Norse mythology, but I think, you know, because of movies like this, because of heavy metal, I've just been very interested in, in Norse mythology, and there are some really like emotional stories about the role fate has and about how that, you know, plays a role in daily life, um, especially for the supernatural forces that, that are in, the, in those stories. You know, like the, the whole story of, of Ragnarok is sort of known throughout, you know, the, the Eddas and, and the, the Norse gods. They're, they're cognizant of the fact that they're all moving towards an endpoint but they still act in a way that comports with their own morality. So even if they could like try and, and shift away from meeting Ragnarok, they they don't. Um, so that fatalism strengthens them. It it allows them to act in a way that they can be proud of. And you know, there's like all sorts of, of stories about, you know, like the, the children of Loki are, you know, these creatures that are going to end the world, right? Uh, they're going to cause Ragnarok, but it would be against all morality if the gods were to just murder these infants. So they don't. And they, they let these children live, knowing that they're going to become, you know, the world-eating serpent or the, the wolf that's going to devour Thor. Um, and I think that's what sets Norse mythology apart from Greek mythology, where the Greek gods would straight up kill those babies. <laughs> um, and so I, I think this, you know, while a lot of the things in, like, Viking funerals or, or Norse culture we would find abhorrent, I think that there is some, like, much much more, like, a quiet nobility to, to the, the fatalism that they have as opposed to the fates in other other mythological realms. And in in Islam? I and in the movie you see this, even Falan always maybe not always, but addresses God as being someone who's compassionate and merciful. And I don't think even Fadlan uh, embraces his fatalism as much as his, his Norse companions. I think he has faith 
in God as being compassionate and merciful, and that mercy will carry him through all these hardships. And so I'd like to juxtapose this movie with another Viking movie, which also has a a Viking working with Abrahamic characters, which is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Valhalla Rising. Mm. Yes. Have either of you seen that movie? I have seen it. Yes. It's it's awesome. It's there's very different from Thirteenth Warrior, but I think about them because again, in that movie, uh, Viking goes with some Christians to find the find the promised land and go on a trek, but what they find is is also very different. Uh, yeah, what what do you think of that? Yeah, it's it's uh, been a while since I've I've seen it, but you know the. I really do like um, Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, approach to to fatalism. It seems to be one of the themes that runs through his work. Like, there's a definite like grim inevitability in a lot of his movies. Um, so, not many Ibn Fadlan like figures, um, but he definitely can you know, make a actor like Mads Mikkelsen iconic and, you know, you'll never forget some of the imagery that that he captures in, in Valhalla rising for sure. Absolutely. And yeah, I just would like to hear about, you know, what it was like as the Arminios growing up, enjoying this movie and creating relationship to it. Yeah. I, I would say all three of the Arminio brothers, um, were or are interested in, in in some of the same things, you know, some of the same video games, some of the same music. So I'd say this movie appealed to all of us, and we, for a while, that we were watching it once a year. I'd say. Yeah, I would, I would say that's accurate. Sure. So you've seen this movie like over ten times. Oh, definitely. And you you really like this movie, even though you find the flaws in it and you're able to connect it to your experience. Yeah, definitely. I I know you you mentioned the um, speaking of memorable lines. One of my favorite lines is try Greek. I wish I had that as uh, my text notification. (laughs) So whenever I um, get a text, I'd have Antonio Bandera saying try Greek. That that is one of my favorite bits in the film, and that definitely um, echoes what happens in the book. Is in the beginning when we have Omar Sharif sort of feeling out the this Viking court. Um, he's speaking in Greek to the Vikings, and the Viking responds in Latin. And, and I think for this cosmopolitan traveler who speaks all these different languages. And for the people he's encountering, who might also speak three, four, five languages, there are languages that they can understand, but languages that they are more comfortable speaking in. And so I think speaking to somebody in Greek who understands that and then speaking back in still another language um, 
is like a really interesting detail that the movie puts in that, you know, I think the average viewer wouldn't get or understand that I probably didn't glom onto until like my eighth viewing or something or until I saw the right trivia on IMDb or whatever. But I, I think that's a really great detail. And, you know, because in the book, Ibn Fadlan is has to speak through a translator for much longer. And so we're sort of, all the events in the book are like filtered through translation and then filtered again through Ibn Fadlan's like accounting to the reader. So there's a bit of a an added distance as he's trying to understand what's happening and then we're trying to understand what he's talking about. Um, and so I, I yeah. appreciate this scene for sort of getting at that theme early on. Yeah, there's there you know there's this scene there's a scene in the movie where Fadlan slowly learns the language of the Vikings. And I thought it was done really cool like they're they're talking in this language and then he's getting bits and pieces of the word and then then he's like, "Oh, how dare you talk shit about me? I'm going to talk shit about you." And they're like, "Oh shit. You know what we're talking about?" Okay, let's let's go kill these bear people. Word. And yeah, there's this cool translation, and he's teaching the dude how to read and talk and write and talk about Islam and compare and contrast, give a little pluralism up in there, and fun fun translation thing. I've always been trying to find uh, a Latin speaker writer to help me translate this line by Lou Reed from Street at Hassle, where he's like, I found this graffiti that said it's hard to give a shit these days, written in Latin. And it's almost impossible to translate because you could literally say giving a shit, but that's not what it means in Latin. And there's no slang for that. So creating a direct translation is difficult. So that's why like they have to tran they they retranslate Dostoevsky Dostoevsky my favorite Scorpio I guess every so often because language changes and to understand the context you also have to translate and then I sometimes wonder what am I reading and when I'm reading a, a author that's been translated I'm like am I really reading it someone's like oh to really understand the Russian greats, you have to know Russian, and I don't, and I don't, I don't think that I'm going to learn any new languages at this point in my life. It's very hard to learn languages later in life. You know, I was just talking to Josh about you know one of my favorite works of literature is the Divine Comedy, but but that's written in Italian as a rhyming epic poem, but Italian is a much easier to language language to rhyme in than English. So when you translate it, you either have to compromise the meaning of the words to maintain the rhyme or get rid of the rhyme scheme altogether to translate the true meaning of the words. And so any other language, you're not really reading the Divine Comedy. And so the fact that I don't know Italian means that I'm never really able to read Dante's words. And that is a little painful uh, to to me, so it's it's always been a regret that I've never learned Italian. 
it's also the divine comedy is also really good but yeah you're saying i'm saying do i know that because i read them in my 20s and i was like oh this is the dopest fan fiction ever yeah yes i don't think it's the original fan fiction you know i'm sure there's fan fiction before but yeah it's sort of like a parts of the aeneid if i'm if i remember correctly nice I'm not, I don't have my phone in front of me. I'm coming off with this stuff. I'm smart. <laughs> Can you think about the fact that like back in the day, there were just like really smart Alex. Like I got, I got away with my character for a long time. Now with smartphones, everybody's an expert. But like all the shit you guys, you know about metal and stuff. You have to work on that sort yeah, of thing. Well, certainly metal archives helps. <laughs> <laughs> frequently visit most frequently visited website by far oh yeah <laughs> so josh do you have the love for metal that john has uh yeah absolutely well i i would say john like many things has a more vast and encyclopedic knowledge of metal than i do i would say my musical taste would often trickle down from john to me and he'll uh, recommend to me a band and I'll maybe pick one song from that band and listen to it over and over and over uh, until I eventually get sick of it and move on. That's kind of my approach to music. But I, I remember Amana Marth's Fate of Norns discovering that and then watching this movie and yeah, being completely enthralled by both. Because yeah, on that on that album, there is a song where the chorus begins with the, with the lead singer just going, Odin. And there's a scene in 13th Warrior where they all call out Odin to as a way to like hear the echo off the shore. Uh, and so just the, the synchronicity between you know our shares is just, in this case, uh, really beautiful and, and sort of like um, like a... A perpetual motion machine of, <laughs> of affection. And it's very interesting because we're, we're talking about some of the recontextualization of people's understanding of Islam in the modern day. And, you know, like the Viking spiritual system is really beautiful and pagan and interesting and, and quite cool. But also it's been used not very well by by hate groups yep. and that are that use that as like this Aryan white power thing and honestly I'm not too familiar with it because I'm not just like oh let me learn more about Nazis or let me just say white supremacists because you know people get caught up in that word and they're like what well everybody's a Nazi like okay so there are actual Nazis and some of them use Norse imagery and it's very unfortunate when people take over these very symbolic and important stories to to turn to hate. Like even the swastika, it's like a you know an Indian sim, uh, symbol of faith. I mean more than Indian, but you know I'm not using my phone, and then turned into this terrible thing. Yeah, you know um, there there definitely are like a certain specific. Um, Norse or Norse adjacent symbols that have been specifically adopted uh, by white supremacy, 
But then there's also just like regular ass Thor's hammer is is used a lot by by these these hate groups, and it's you know a real unfortunate or you know infuriating co-opting of of a, a culture and a religion that has nothing to do with white supremacy. You, you know, like the Vikings tra- traveled um, from Constantinople to Spain. Like they they were a group that very happily adopted the cultural practices of other people if they found them effective or you know interesting and so uh, you know this sort of like white exclusivity which the vikings would have no concept of um is totally anathema to to norse culture yeah and also like recently not that long ago they found you know possibly african bones in uh, you know ranging from the time of the Vikings in Scandinavia and and um, African items, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, there's all these stories of like going to Spain and going to England and going all over the world. And they're not, they're not, you know, and also like that, that vision of like those horn hats, you know, they never wore no horn hats. Yeah. That's not real. There's no horn hats. I was surprised to find that out. Yeah, and but then I was watching. Th- sorry, that is one of the things that I like about one of the pr- pr- production design and costume design elements that I like about this movie is that like the bear people, who are sort of like this tribe out of time from the Bronze Age, they're the ones with the horn hats. You know, th- that is something that might have existed like three thousand years ago. But certainly not anymore. And the the Viking armor is all stuff from all over the world. Like it's a conglomerated, ununified mishmash of places they've been before, which I thought was a really interesting detail. Yeah, you definitely get a sense that uh, these 13 or the 12 warriors have definitely beaten people up around the world. And even though most of the armor is pretty anachronistic, uh, the, the production design does a good job in showing that these are veterans of multiple c- campaigns, and I think that kind of played into my interest as a D&D fan. This is a, a very much like gather your party and venture forth sort of movie, and the scene in the tent where they're gathering all these warriors is definitely one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And you get a glimpse of how each warrior kind of approaches this journey. You know, some are pretty solemn and dignified. Some are really raucous about it. Uh, some are pretty, you know, prideful. And then even Phalon is, maybe, you know, pretty reluctant at first. Uh, whenever I play an MMO and I'm about to go off into a dungeon, this scene always kind of goes through my head when I'm out there looking for party members. Is that a video, MMO that's multi? Yeah, yeah, like massive like your, multiplayer yeah, online. Your World of Warcrafts, your your Final Fantasies. Okay, okay, and you said you like to do D and D. Yeah, I think John, you know, let me know if you agree with this. This and Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, are kind of your 
non D and D and D movies, you know, you kind of have like the bard archetype. There's the ranger. There's like the rogue and the barbarian and the the knight, and you kind of have all these different types of archetypes teaming up to go on this adventure. Yeah, I would say that you know template of fantasy movie um, is all over the place in in eighties fantasy. Sword and sorcery. Yeah. yeah. Sword and sorcery, they call yeah. it. Um, big big fan of that the genre. Bring up Conan the Barbarian, and I definitely think this movie owes a lot. To, to that film and I think you know almost any fantasy movie made after that does but I think there's a lot of um, I, I love the score by Jerry Goldsmith but I, I do think it's um, very I don't uh, okay well it, it's very consciously reminiscent of Conan the Barbarian um, I've listened to that score many times it's one of my favorite scores ever um, so it's not as good as that one and I think Jerry Goldsmith is also recycling some of his cues from specifically the Star Trek to Wrath of Khan score. And I think that has to do with uh, the fact that he was brought in way late into production to replace another composer. So it, it, sh- it shows, I think, that he did not have uh, the time usually needed to, to do a score, but I, I enjoy it. But in any case, um, I think one of the best scenes in the movie, um, the sort of night raid by the bear people with the flaming torches and the visceral violence, I think that scene in particular owes a lot to Conan the Barbarian. But it's also one of the best scenes in the film, one of the best action scenes at least, so I'm I'm not going to complain. I always thought it was a a shame that they never made the, the third Conan movie. Yes, yeah. And I almost, I, I don't know, because like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not like the coolest guy and it, but it would be interesting if they did a Conan movie now about an aging King. I know that they remade Conan a bunch of times and there's some great Conan comic books. Yeah, actually. for sure. Yeah. There's a ton of very talented artists and writers that have contributed to the Conan mythos over the years in, in comics. Yeah. In Marvel in the seventies with, you know, Barry Windsor Smith through, you know, dark horse and Marvel again, uh, with Jason Aaron writing an astounding run. But yeah, there's just so many great Conan stories out there. Yeah. Did they, it would have, I could see them, did they ever turn any of these stories into comic books? 13th Warrior? Uh, No. Uh, That would be very cool. I don't know what the right situation is for, for this, especially with the very messy production and the, Michael Crichton estate. I have no clue. But it would be awesome. Oh, yeah. I, w- I could see, like... I could see this being a really great... You know, since we're talking about Dungeons & Dragons. I think this could be a really great Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Yeah. Like, style, like you could idea. write it as a... You know... I don't know. Uh, so, Josh and John, I don't know... I, I'm curious. So... This show also aims to not just look at spiritual ideas, but also look at political ideas. And for us, you know, a leftist bent, and I don't know your politics, and you don't have to go into them if you don't want to. But how do y'all interpret this movie from, say, a political lens? Um, well, historically, you know, Ibn Fadlan was sent to secure allies in the caucuses and to help 
Muslim converts in the Caucasus, uh, build mosques and facil facilitate trade between these allies and the caliphate. So I think this journey was both a spiritual and a political and economic endeavor. And I just think it goes to show that the, if you wanted to call it the medieval world, was a lot more interconnected than I think a lot of people believe in how willing people were to interact with people outside their community uh, if, if it was for some sort of mutual benefit. You know, these weren't a real insular, closed-minded people. You know, this movie shows that Arabs in Baghdad did know about Vikings and they wanted to expand their borders and facilitate trade and they were sending people to Persia and India and China and Sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, the British Isles to... Yeah, to benefit them and to yeah, facilitate trade and to grow the empire yeah, and, and do all these things. So, yeah, it's the interconnectedness of these cultures, of this, this cultural connection that has always really, uh, you know, enraptured me. I don't think tales like this really get told enough. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote barbarian civilizations like the Vikings were just a lot more egalitarian, you know, by necessity and, and by design than a lot of the more structured uh, civilizations that they fought against. And the, this movie doesn't really uh, go into that because, you know, we're focusing on Bolvai and, and his struggle for kingship uh, on the Viking side. Um, but, you know, Vikings were not ignorant barbarians that they had a very distinct political system that um that a lot of people found you know a admirable at, at the time or even more freeing than uh the the culture that they grew up in interesting and josh do you are you religious at all no, I would describe myself as pretty irreligious. Okay, but you're but you're still you still find yourself connected and interested in this story. Yeah, absolutely, and I don't I don't want to make it seem like the fact that it does have a practicing Muslim protagonist as kind of a token, you know, the sole reason I enjoy this movie i just think it just in that sense it does something that a lot of western produced movies haven't done before and it, it shows this segment of history that hasn't been explored before and again at this time you know i was playing civilization three and civilization four as as the arabs and i got really really like interested in learning about the, the caliphate you know i liken it to if there was like a 13 year old iraqi boy who knew a lot about like the teapot dome scandal <laughs> like someone who knew a lot of like you know semi-obscure parts about history so you know seeing someone 
from a time period and from a quote um uh civilization you know somebody represented a part in history and a culture that was represented in all these video games i was playing on screen and you know seeing it on the on the map and talking about this era in history that i was so invested in especially as a teenager you know that I, I i couldn't get enough of this even though the map at the beginning of the movie is wrong but i think we can excuse that it is you know something to remember is that these are movies yeah <laughs> You know, there's there's this thing that movies often do, like especially in English language films, where you're you're to suspend disbelief and understand that while they're talking in English, they're not talking in English. You know, right? That just so we understand what they're talking about. Would would you say that this this movie inspired you at all in your life as an interpreter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I kind of maintained this. Well, I, I still maintain it to this day, but, you know, playing those games and watching this movie over and over definitely, yes, yeah, spurred me to learn Arabic and work in translation uh, for years. Yes, this, influence, uh, this movie has had a, definitely a tremendous influence on me. Is interpretation political? Oh wow. I I would say like any profession it definitely can be and I think it determines on what what the outcome of your translation is. I mean, I did translation for the US government, so in, in that respect yeah, it was absolutely political. It was sort of a trick question because I believe translation is absolutely political, be- mm-hmm. especially if you look at the Bible and how I mean, when I say the Bible, I mean well, really, most Bibles, but I was thinking of the Christian Bible, which had some very, you know, the King's James, the King James version edition that is oft uh, quoted is has so many words wrong and so many ideas wrong, and there's history of people just taking parts of the Bible out, or you know, the the Bible is actually, you know, up until a long time ago, is like a living text, mm-hmm. and as as a nerd have y'all ever read any of uh robert Alt- alter's uh translations of the abrahamic texts i have not i have not dude okay it's so good i mean it's really intense it's so it's really meticulously translated and it also it's very annotated to give historical contexts and things of that nature and it's so it's so different when you have a fresh translation and you have annotations and you have footnotes i think footnotes are one of the underrated things in in anything yeah and this kind of makes me want to posit this question going back to the eaters of the dead and its footnotes i i selected one that I think one or two that I think is kind of emblematic of some of my, I don't mind my, my hesitations about this book or maybe Michael Crichton as a person or, you know, his, his approach to this history is one of the footnotes is he describes Ibn Fadlan going to the realm of the Northman and being amazed by the amount of tr- 
trees and rain because, quote, he's from a desert, which, you know, isn't true geographically. Baghdad is on a floodplain, you know, agriculture arguably emerged from that area. And especially back then, you know, there are a lot more marshes and swamps in that area. So I think it's unfair, maybe a bit racist to say that someone from Baghdad is from a, a desert. Uh, and he also speaks about Arabic very broadly. And one of the citations refers to how, quote, everybody who has translated the Quran speaks of Arabic as being succinct, which uh, I, I don't think academically you can really use the word everyone in that respect. And, you know, you're not what language are you comparing Arabic to? Well, yeah, what what language could you, what language would you compare it to? I, and John did ask me this, you know, he, he posited this, this annotation to me and learning Arabic, I was never, I don't remember ever being really surprised. I would never really dis use the word succinct really to describe my approach to Arabic or learning Arabic. It was modern Arabic, modern standard Arabic MSA is based off of Quranic Arabic. So there are a lot of dialects of Arabic, kind of the standardized version used in military communications and in the media, the news media primarily is based off Quranic Arabic. So it written down, it is often very lengthy. The sentences are very long and the paragraphs are also very long. So as an English native English speaker coming to Arabic, I wouldn't, if I was asked to describe it succinct, wouldn't, at least for modern standard Arabic, wouldn't be one of the words I'd use. Interesting. And I just, I just grabbed my copy of Robert Alter's translation of the Bible. And just to give, Again, the Christian Bible. Well, actually, this is this is his translation of the five books of Moses. I just want to give an example of why context in these texts can be really helpful, even though there's a history of people, you know, not exploring these texts. So, and it happened after the scourge that the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saying, Count the heads of all the community of Israelites from 20 years and up by their father's houses, everyone who goes out into the army of Israel. And then connected to that is this amazing commentary where it's like, it happened after the scourge. Although these words occur at the end of chapter 25 in the conventional chapter break, they clearly belong here. And count the heads is a principal narrative sequence of the book of numbers consisting largely of a series of incidents. I mean, it's just... I love it. I love that sort of thing. So I was, I figure as a, I don't know if you're a translation nerd, but you seem like a nerd. And I mean that in the nicest <laughs> sense. Thank you. Cause you know, popcorn eschaton's a bunch sure. of nerds, you know, I just feel like it's just fun to, to play around in words. Yeah, you know, and uh, I was talking with uh, Joshua about this, you know, eaters of the dead is in the literary tradition of, fake text newly discovered 
and mixing that with real text like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft does that. Um, a bunch of the English romantics did that. And since I was in college, I, like the idea of writing a book and then pretending that book is something that you found and didn't write is just a really intriguing like kind of proposition for an author to use and and sort of to create a, a living document to create a history of a living document um always really you know stimulates the the nerd cortex of of my brain and um you know there are some like heavy metal albums that that, that get into that um you know, one called uh, Ard, Take Up My Bones, uh, is about the the monks who served St. Cuthbert um, and the duty that they had to ferry his bones from place to place to keep them out of possession of the, the Vikings and the sort of false or, you know, invented testimonials of these monks. So that sort of um, invention of historical narrative has always been something of, of great interest to me. And as we sort of wind down on this episode, what are some closing thoughts from both of you, brothers Arminio? I would say both the book and the movie are absolutely worth uh, visiting. I would say, and going beyond that, I would say Eben Fadlon as a person, also his original text and also uh, the text of uh, Eben Rustar also absolutely worth visiting. They say a lot of interesting and uh, like flabbergasting things about uh, Vikings, about the Rus people. And I was telling John a lot of medieval and ancient sources of you know diplomats visiting foreign peoples often talk about how attractive they are and uh, even Fadlon talks about Vikings being very tall uh, being very good looking and good physical shape covered in tattoos and yeah if you're into history if you're into Norse history this is definitely uh, worth visiting but, and a, approach the footnotes in Eaters of the Dead with a bit of curiosity and kind of know what they're intended for. And what are they intended for? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think I can... <laughs> that, that's something I've been thinking about myself. I think... Um, I mean, a lot of them are there to frustrate me, it, it, it's, it, it seems like. Um... I know. I think John may be better equipped to answer that question. I, I think in in um, in Michael Crichton's mind, they're there to add a bit of verisimilitude to the text and to sort of insert himself into the historiography of Ibn Fadlan's original work. So there is this sort of like invented narrative of his travels as okay. Well, actually, this historical stuff has been added to with all this this quest where him and the Vikings are going to go off and fight these bear people. And so 
he's sort of positioning himself as the uniter um, of of these stories and of these these various translations, and I, so he's inserted himself into that uh, that literary tradition, and, and I think. It, it's even though Michael Crichton is like a flawed individual, uh, his his books for me are hit or miss. I think it's also interesting anytime an artist, especially one with such enormous popularity, taking such a drastic turn from their usual modus operandi. Like this does not read like any of his other texts, and and I think that's kind of exciting um, for for any author or for any artist, especially because this book is a real quick quick read. It's it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I would say yeah, check it out and and you know check out the movie and, and keep an open mind when you're when you're watching it. It's it's a good time, but also has some some things to say. And uh, I would also like to add that John and I own the uh, I believe it is the 1991 printing of the Eaters of the Dead, which has a very fascinating cover that kind of looks like a Viking has been transported to some sort of Sega Genesis type realm and is now kind of gazing on this computerized landscape while people are impaled before him. So uh, if someone can make this into a poster and then mail it to me, I, I will definitely pay you for that service. In the long and storied tradition of bewildering <laughs> covers of paperback novels that have nothing to do with the subject matter. That, that tell you absolutely nothing about the book. Well, Josh, it was great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for uh, letting me talk about this. Now I don't have to bug my friends and family about all this knowledge I have about the 13th Warrior. All right, y'all. Take care. Thank you. See ya.